Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to the Wagon Wheel. I am Jared Kimber. Thank you for listening to this either on the podcast stream, my original YouTube channel, or hopefully my new YouTube channel, which is all for podcasts, because we're making too many videos on the uh, original one. And so we're going to have two different YouTube channels. So Jared Kimber podcast, if you're not there already and you do like these podcasts, obviously there'll be more and more of them um, as we go forward. So please go over there and subscribe and uh you know, do whatever you have to do. Even if you're not going to listen to it and you just like our channel, it will help us out uh, from that perspective and uh, we'll see how we go. But in the future, all the lives will be done over there other than the mood board. Anyway, that's uh, that's housekeeping. Uh, but let us talk about uh, all the questions. Remember, if you want to ask questions and you're listening to this live on YouTube, you can contact us via just normal comments. But if you're desperate for some, your question to be asked, you can do a super chat either on either of the YouTube channels or uh, you also have the uh, um, opportunity to support us on Patreon, which means you can pre, pre-question, pre-order your question. I don't know how the best way of putting that. But if you're a Patreon subscriber, you can put questions in beforehand. And many people did, including Christopher, who says, a lot of narrative is about England's batting approach. But the bigger problem for me seems that England bowled for 64 more overs, uh, 64 more overs and couldn't take 20 wickets. Does this not need to be England's biggest concern. Well, the thing I hear, Christopher, is these two things are linked, right? Once England went into this um, series by saying that their best chance of winning was with flat batting pitches, they were actually taking away a strength of their bowlers, right? So their bowlers have been very good over, uh, you know, the last year and a half, uh, you know, in the year and a half, year, year and a bit, year and change, maybe. Uh, in this baseball era of manufacturing wickets. Now, part of that comes from the fact that their batters are making a lot of runs and putting a lot of pressure on the other teams, but they've also been more attacking in the way they've gone about it. Well, how could they attack on this wicket, right? They they went in with the four bowlers bowling essentially right arm pace at the, at the same speed. I know that Anderson and Stokes are quite different, but obviously Ollie Robertson and Sean Broad are a lot more similar. Um, you know, there's no left armor there. There's no fast bowler there. It's There's not even a fast medium bowler there, really, at the paces that everyone was bowling in this test for England. So they made that choice after knowing that they asked for a pitch that wasn't going to suit their traditional medium-fast kind of scene. That, to me, seems a bigger issue. And, and so when you're saying that, you know, about the narrative of England's batting approach, 
and England didn't bowl very well. Well, of course they didn't bowl very well. They specifically made pitches that didn't allow them to bowl very well. It's a very different situation. And I think what they're trying to do is nullify Australia's skill, which is obviously you saw when Cummins and Boland uh, uh, were bowling and moving the ball around everywhere for that little session uh, when, when, it, when it was cloudy. There's absolutely no doubt that you know the Australian bowlers are faster and um, tougher to deal with at the moment than even the England bowlers. And so if, if you factor in that sort of Marnus Smith element of that, and now you'd have to throw in Usman Khawaja, even head, I suppose, as well. Suddenly, there's a, not a weakness for the England team, but they're a little bit worried that those batters will dominate their bowlers um, and that then the bowlers, the Australian bowlers, will, will dominate the England batters. Now, all they're really doing in this situation is helping one side of the ball, not the other. So you could still argue that they've actually made their bowling worse by this. But that's why this has happened, right? It's not an accident that this has happened that way um but yeah i'm not i'm not saying that england's bowling isn't a concern but when that when they were getting the ball to move around they still look pretty good to me they use the new ball very well at times it's not a particularly i don't think anyone consistently looked good bowling in fact there were times even when i thought cummins didn't look particularly good bowling on this wicket as well so you know i certainly wouldn't put anything on the uh england bowlers this is just not a good wicket but if you are going to pick a wicket like this i still think it's weird that you wouldn't go with wood wouldn't go with wood accidental but we'll take it patrick says do you think spin will play an outsized roles in these ashes or was it an edge baston aberration i'm not i'm not expecting it to play as big a role as it probably did here like I don't think there are going to be many tests where Joe Root is going to be such an important figure towards the end of the game. I mean, England might have a frontline spinner that can do that role. But the point is, I think he would have bowled a lot, even if Moinelli was fit, just because of the kind of bowler he is. That's not something we, we tend to see that often in English conditions. That the only, the only caveat I would put to that, Patrick, is we don't actually know what these other pitches are going to be like. I don't think Ed, the Ed Baston wicket was exactly what England wanted. I think they wanted a flat wicket that would allow them to score, you know, 500 in four, you know, 550 in four sessions, put pressure on Australia that way, um, and then chip away with smart bowlers. And I think they kind of did the second part, even, um, even to answer Christopher's question from that point of view. Um, but they didn't expect it to be that low and slow. And that made their, their seamers look a little bit worse, which meant that obviously spin had to play a bigger role. Um, and Nathan Lyon bowled very, very well. But there are going to be times when the England players are going to be able to hit him out of the attack. So no, I'm not saying spin won't play as big a role. Um, I don't think it'll play as big a role as it did in this test. But also, I don't think spin goes away in this series either. Uh, Manon says, would a keeper be better than your average player while fielding at short leg or silly point? No, it's a very different kind of position. So wicket-keeping, what's the best way of explaining wicket-keeping? Wicket-keeping isn't like other fielding positions, and I include slip in this. It's why you see a lot of wicket-keepers get put into slip, and they don't seem to do particularly well. It's because uh, slip, slip fielding is you're looking at the bat and you're making a reaction. Wicket-keeping isn't actually making a reaction. What you're doing is you are tracing the ball the whole time and your body is moving with the ball. So if you think about what you're doing at short leg or silly point, again, that is not what's happening. So short leg and silly point for people who haven't fielded at them are very weird positions because your vision is so obscured. It's one of the few positions on the ground where you can't really see the bowler coming in, for instance. It's one of the few positions where, you know, you have to think of your safety before anything else. 
that doesn't really compare to wikikeeping or anything. The, the advantages of being a wikikeeper in those positions are probably that wikikeepers are better at you know staying low, and that is a very important part of our fielding and close. Um, other than that, I think I think most wikikeepers are following the line of the ball and then going with it when there's an edge they're exaggerating their movements maybe diving maybe moving quite quickly whereas i think that is very very different to what we see with um those other fielding positions which are much more reactionary and everything else so i've fielded kind of everywhere including wicket keeping and silly point and short leg and you know but slips my my normal position i don't see a lot of crossover between those positions it doesn't mean that someone can't be good at multiple positions because i think that's obviously possible but i do think that they all require slightly different skills um you know i I, when i'm fielding really like to watch the ball as it is coming in and so at silly point or short leg i find it hard to concentrate on the batter and his feet and his bat and so because of that um I struggle, and I and I wonder if that is partly because it's an unusual fielding position to begin with, but also because if you feel behind the the wicket specifically, you're spending a lot of time watching the ball coming towards you and and reading what the ball is doing. So if you're fielding first slip, for instance, and you see the ball start to swing in uh, to a right hander, I think naturally I will move a little bit to the left because I think if there, anything's going to happen here, it's that the wicket keeper will move to their left. And if there's still an outside edge, it might go a little bit finer and I need to cover, you know, slightly more ground between the two um, uh, in that sort of situation. Sh- silly point and short leg, other than, other than really picking up on the batter's footwork, which is a, an art in itself, it's completely different. Interesting question though. Luke says, how good is Mark Watt? Uh, where do you place him in your readings of left-arm orthodox spinners in World Cricket today? Well, he made a 50, uh, Luke, today. Look, I think he's really good, and I think he's really good for a bunch of reasons. I think with Watty, uh, and of course I work with Scotland, so uh, you know I'm probably slightly biased towards him. I, I think with him, my big thought was that he was so good against left-handers. And I, you know, for a left-arm finger spinner, that's a really, really important skill to have. I think the other thing is that he thinks about the game in a very different way. So let's focus on his batting a little bit here. That I don't think he's the most naturally gifted batter. And, you know, he's probably on batting talent a number nine or a number 10. But he can bat as high as, you know, seven in a bad situation, certainly bat at number eight. And the reason is, is he's so smart and he thinks about the game in such a different way. He, he bats very similar to someone like Adil Rashid, where you're not quite sure where he's going to hit the next ball. And he's trying to outthink you. And I think that sort of stuff really helps when you're a spinner as well. Obviously, the extra tricks of bowling, you know, uh, the balls. So before he started bowling the ball from where the umpire stands, he also used to bowl wrist spin as well. So he's clever and he's skillful. So I, I don't know where you put him up on left arm finger spinners. I'd have to go through the the, the global list and, and see where everyone goes. But there aren't a lot of left arm finger spinners at the moment who are very high up in, uh, you know, in my estimations, I don't think there are as many dominating as the game as perhaps as there was a little while ago. You know, that sort of uh, Imad Wazim uh, type bowlers that were doing very, very well. Um, even Krunal Pandya for a long time, although his, his form has come back a little bit. Uh, but there were quite a few left arm finger spinners who were doing very well. That's not quite the case anymore. So so I think do think from that perspective that it has changed uh, uh, a little bit. So that maybe that helps Mark Watt. I also think that he has the ability to bowl like a traditional left-arm finger spinner when he needs to. But he also has the ability to bowl this 
all altogether different, almost medium pace at times um, style. He's very strong. He can bowl Yorkers better than pretty much any modern spinner in the world, I would say. So again, I just think he has a lot of different skills available to him. I think because of he's not seen as a great athlete, I think that has held him back a little bit, probably, well, definitely wrongly at times. And also because he's a Scottish spinner, right? Like, I, I wonder if he would be even an English spinner um, or a West Indian spinner and bowl exactly the same way if we would have at least seen him tested in the higher levels. And I'd love to see him tested more and more at franchise cricket. I'd love to see how good he actually is. Aditya says, uh, Bradman is the test, test match batting goat without any doubt. But if you had to pick four to five batters who have legitimate claims of being number two, who would they be? Um, uh, so me and Cheyenne, uh, uh, the other thing you're talking about, the 50 great um, test batters project, it's still coming along. Uh, it's a lot of fun. And me and Cheyenne were talking about it, in fact, the other day. I think that Sachin has a very good claim. I think the level of play that he had over the length of time that he had is... Uh, unarguably puts him on that list. Uh, who else at number two? Jack Hobbs is probably another automatic player. Jack Hobbs was averaging 50 in the early 1900s when that was basically unheard of. And he's still playing at the end of the 1920s when batting has completely changed and he's still at that same kind of level as Sutcliffe and Hammond and Bradman come along and maybe... They have slightly higher averages, but they didn't have to play in the period where it was very tough in the way that Jack Hobbs did. 197 first-class hundreds, uh, you know, opening the batting for 30 years, all those before and after a war. I think in, in the Hobbs and Tendulka case, I do think the length and quality of length of their careers makes a big difference. For instance, Sachin is probably underrated for what he did in the 80s slash 90s, and is probably overrated for what he did in the 2000s based on the batting errors. But when you think about what he did as a kid and what he did as a very old player in the professional game, it's just absolutely mind-blowing. So I think those those are the two automatic number twos. Sobers is an interesting one because he bats further down the order. But again, the I think with him, the attacking nature of which of which he played with as well, the fact that he didn't bat in a particularly, you know, he was such an outlier in the era that he played in. And I also, I don't know how much we can hold it against him that he didn't bat up the order because he was an opening bowler. <laughs> he could have, probably could have batted three. Probably would have been an ideal four, I think so. Uh, uh, but obviously, you know, they kept him down the order for good reason. Um, so I would say those are the obvious ones. I'm trying to think of who else me and Cheyenne had. I think Steve Smith is probably getting towards that conversation. I don't think he's number two, but if you're talking about, you know, the four to five players, I think if he has another, let's say he has another three years of, uh, you know, plus 55 batting average, considering he did it in a great batting era and then did it in a terrible batting era, it would be really hard not to have him in that conversation. Viv Richards is an interesting one because I suppose it depends on how much you rate strike rate. But I also think the back end of Viv Richards' career, it just wasn't on that level. And I know probably a lot of other people would have him up there. Gavaskar is another interesting one um, if, because of the opening element, but he didn't open in, in a place where opening was as traditionally hard. So I do think you have to weigh that up a little bit. And I'm trying to think of anyone else that we had that was pretty high. Uh, Headley, you know, guys like Headley and Pollock, you can't put up there. They just didn't play enough cricket. Uh, you've got Hammond and Barrington and, you know, those sorts of levels of players, you know, all fantastic, but I don't think they're quite on that level. 
Um, Lara and Ponting, again, fantastic. I'm not sure they're quite at that top top level. I feel like I'm forgetting someone really obvious. Um, so, yeah, so I think, yeah, Hobbs, Tendulka, potentially Smith, although I wouldn't put him there now. Um, Sobers, uh, certainly there. Uh, Kumasankikara is another really, really interesting one that I want to delve into a lot deeper. And to be honest, this is a conversation I'll have a lot more information about going forward. But as it currently stands, I find it hard to think that it, it shouldn't be Hobbs or Tendulka just because of they were the best batter in the world for just such an extraordinary amount of time and had to that means they had to play in when Hobbs's case you'd almost you'd probably say two distinct eras that were separated by a world war and in Tendulkar's case certainly two completely different eras again um and so the the skills that allow you to dominate you know three eras like if you you take the whole David Warner thing at the moment we've just done a podcast with Bayram for footmarks about this of David Warner probably is going is on the on the uh, all time great list at, at one stage. You know, maybe looking towards what being top 20, 25 players of all time. Even with his weaker overseas record, just because he openers just don't do what David Warner does, right? On the other side of that, of course, is that when the game changes, Warner can't keep up to that level. Doesn't mean he's not going to go down as one of the best openers all the time, because I still think that's very, very fair. But he's not quite on that same level that he probably was. And that's the thing that is really hard because it's very easy to dominate your era. It is much harder to dominate um when you're a kid. It's much harder to dominate during your peak and then also dominate after your peak. And I think in Hobbs and Tendilka's case, you know, it's all the way through. And I think, you know, uh, unless I've got Hobbs's record mistaken, but I know Tendulka is a lot better off the top of my head. So those those would be my answers at the moment from from that. But we're uh, you, I might come back and someone might ask me this. You know, with me and Chan, have done a little bit more work, and we'll be like, ah, actually, uh, we're wrong, and it wasn't those two, and there was someone else that we didn't think of. But I think whoever else it would have to be would have to be, you know, it would be very interesting to see who, if anyone could knock off those guys. Will says, why can't spinners put a plaster on their fingers? Not like people aren't taking painkillers or strapping other parts of their body. It, it, um, you, you can't affect anything that's on the ball. They don't want players to put gloves on uh, when they're bowling. There would be other um, side effects of that, Will. For instance, you would then have um, gloves that might have extra grip and everything else, or the plasters that might have extra grip. Um, the the idea is that the ball is you know coming out of someone's hand absolutely purely at the moment. There's interesting questions around slipfielders, of course, which sometimes have so much plaster on their hands um, already. And I know it's been discussed at um, some high levels before, but the the idea is that it is you know a bowler is bowling with their naked hand, right, and nothing else. There's a lot of sports that don't allow gloves. There, there are some that do, of course, um, but there are a lot of sports that don't allow gloves or you know, uh, uh, look into the gloves. I, I'm not sure that cricket ne- really needs to thoroughly going down there. Also, fast bowlers get injured and have to play with, you know, legs that are falling apart and backs that stiffen up and all these different things. And it's the same with with spinners. I'm not actually sure if the plaster would help particularly that much. I'm not sure it would help. But even if it does, you know, bowling hurts. and And from that perspective... It is actually part of the art has always been managing the pain, right? You know, it's why Courtney Walsh might not be one of the top 20 bowlers of all time, but Courtney Walsh's ability, um, you know, to bowl through pain in a way that other bowlers could not 
does actually elevate him over other people to get back to the previous conversation we were just happening. I don't specifically think a plaster would help a spinner anyway. I think the plaster would fall apart every couple of seconds and we'd be replacing it all the time, which would cause other problems anyway. Um, but also think that there is, you know, you are supposed to be bowling with your fingers. But, you know, I'm not wedded to the idea, but that's why. Ben says, sports get more professional, players in general get bigger and more athletic over time. How does this affect cricket? I could see it benefiting the power game of white ball, but given that the best batters and tests are historically short, how does that affect test batting? I think that the whole thing about the best batters ever being short comes from a time where the ball didn't bounce that high, right? So if you look at the, the start of cricket right up until body line, for instance, short bowling isn't really a major part of the game and the pitches aren't particularly hard. They aren't made for bowlers to do that and the bowls are a lot slower. So it's harder for the bowls to bowl regular short balls anyway, you know, on those kinds of surfaces. We now are seeing um, uh, something change uh, when it comes to the way that, uh, that, bowl, uh, that bowlers are and batters are because of this athleticism that you're talking about, but also the conditions have changed a little bit and the game has changed the way that we play it. So I think now there is a feeling that tall batters actually help because they disrupt lines a little bit more. Sorry, lines. They disrupt lengths a little bit more. They can get on top of a test bowler's uh, best length. You know, that's the Zach Crawley theory. If Zach Crawley was, I don't know, five foot ten, and had the exact same record, there is no way he would be playing test cricket. The the big part of Zach Crawley is that because he can drive some, you know, Shaheen Afridi's best ball for four, that that actually puts him in a situation where he is uh, more valuable. So we are seeing athleticism come into the game from that point of view. The the other thing with the short batters specifically that you're talking about before, and, you know, I've, I remember having this conversation with Mark Nicholas, and I was telling him my pitch theory, and he was also saying, that, and this is very valid what he was saying, is that traditionally it's easier to be coordinated with your hand-eye coordination if you have shorter arms. Right? Like, you know, watch an NBA game and watch some of these, you know, seven-foot centers and they can't even take the ball right because it's, it, you know, it's hard. Their arms are so long. You know, if your wingspan is seven foot five or, you know, seven foot eight or whatever, getting your hands in the position that you need them to is not as easy as, as it is for someone who's six foot tall. So I do think that has always played a big part in cricket as well. But if you're talking about how the, you know, uh, athletes getting bigger, we've never had this many fast bowlers in the history of cricket as we do right now. Go back and have a look at the speed bowling competition from um, whatever it was, 1979 in Australia. You'll see that Tomo's top speed of 155 is about 10 Ks quicker, I think, than Andy Roberts and Michael Holding, I want to say. Um, but the real interesting thing isn't Tomo to the, to the next fastest bowler. It's actually that there are a bunch of guys bowling around high 120s in that. Now, let's say that, and, and, and Jeff Lawson has said to me before, that that speed test wasn't very accurate and wasn't done correctly. But we do know that there is in any, in any way a huge difference between Jeff Thompson's top speed and the 10th quickest bowler in the world's top speed. That is not the case anymore. Let, let's say that, I don't know, Mark Wood is the fastest current bowler right? Mark Wood's top speed is not that much quicker than uh, who, who else would you have up there? Um, uh, so you'd have Nokia, you'd have you know all those guys. So let's say Cummins is like the 10th quickest bowler in the world, right? They're probably only like 5Ks difference, you know? Maybe 7Ks difference at their very top end speed, if, if, you, if you're looking at it from that perspective. That's a big difference between that and 30. And the guy, and the, what about the 10 bowlers behind Cummins are probably also even closer to Cummins. So the athleticism has changed. It will become a more 
you know, uh, a, a faster game. But it's not just that. Have a look at the speeds of which Rashid Khan and uh, Ravi Jadeja and uh, who are some of the other fastest spinners. Well, Syed Ajmal when he was bowling, even if it was illegal, look at the speeds of spinners are bowling now. Go back and watch, have a look at a clip of Bisham Beatty. And I've got a friend of mine who's, you know, a, a professional uh, finger spinner, and he was having a look at Bishop Beatty, and, he's, and he asked me, he said, what speed do you think he's bowling? He would have been bowling. Bishop Beatty looked like he was bowling around 70 kilometers an hour. So what's that, 45? So slower than, you know, slower than Matt Parkinson. Can you imagine a finger spinner bowling at that speed anymore? And you can see it. You can actually see in the wicket keepers, the way they react to things. They just have so much time to get to the ball. And so from that perspective, the, we're not seeing any of that happening. We're seeing a lot more bowlers bowling a lot more quicker. I'm not going to get into the whole Jeff Thompson um, argument side of it. Uh, and we certainly had, you know, Underwood and O'Reilly before. We've had fast spinners for their era. I don't think we've ever had as many fast spinners as we have right now who are genuine spin bowlers. Ravi Dadeja and Rashid Khan are genuine spin bowlers. They're not bowling faster cutters or anything like that. They are bowling very, very fast, um, but they're actually still bowling proper spin. They're putting a lot of revolutions on the ball. So I think that will be a big thing. I do think the power game, uh, from even in test batting matters, and it's not just a baseball thing, but just in general, you know, we watch Travis Head get bounced, in, uh, you know, against England. And we know that he's not very good against the short ball. And that all the field is set back for him to play the pull shot. His ability to back away and use his strength to muscle the ball back down the ground where there isn't going to be fielders, it's going to be a way for him to do that. You know, the same with playing a spinner and you're struggling against a spinner and your ability to, you know, hit sixes uh, and put pressure back onto them. The physical side of all that matters, the physical side of fielding. So, yeah, I do think that test cricket will be affected. It'll be affected just in different ways, but I certainly think it will be affected. Simon says, talking about Sunday evening at Edgebaston, various journalists have said things like, overhead conditions helping seamers. Surely this is wrong. A seam movement is about what happens when the ball is briefly on the ground. What things do affect the amount of seam movement available to bowlers? So, I mean, we haven't, this still hasn't been tested correctly. I was hoping that with all the Hawkeye data that CrickViz would be able to kind of seal this one way or another. And I've certainly played a lot of cricket in, in sunny conditions where the ball swings. And for long periods of time that I'm at least skeptical um, of, of uh, some of this. I also think that uh, in general, you know, the conditions in places like New Zealand and England also protect the balls a little bit more than they get protected in, you know, India and the West Indies and South Africa and Australia and Sri Lanka and those places. So, I th you know, I think there are, there are very, very different things to play. What I would say is that the most seen movement I saw in this game, and this isn't a hawk, I think, but the most seen movement I saw in this game was when it was cloudy in that session. That could have just been that the lacquer was coming off uh, the ball a little bit, and there was, uh, the Australians were also swinging the ball a little bit at that point. But Scott Boland was moving the ball two and three times as much as he was when, when there wasn't cloud. The truth is that science is going to be the only thing that can truly answer this. And I'm not sure there's ever going to be enough money in the answer. I, I always thought in the early days of CrickViz, it's something they should have invested a lot of time in because kind of if they could solve that and every newspaper in the world writes about it, then that's a good way of selling themselves as a company. But, uh, you know, there's been a lot of changes to CrickViz over the years, uh, well, recent times. But I just don't think that's a priority for them anymore. And maybe it was going to cost them too much money. I, I, I don't know. Neron says, bowls like Darren Sammy, uh, 
Dimmick Kapasad and Doug Bracewell bowled in a very bad era for bowlers and averaged more than 35 and were seen as mediocre test bowlers. Looking back, do you think they were more skilled cricketers and deserve to remember better than batters like Collingwood, Ashwell Prince and Dilshan who managed to average 40 plus? Um, if they played now, I feel their legacies would be reversed. Yeah, I mean, this is the history of test cricket, right? You, you're very, you know, how many very good batters pl- batted in the 1980s, for instance, and have... You know, so, you know, I'm doing commentary with Jeremy Coney at the moment. He averaged 37 in a very tough period to be batting in New Zealand. Um, I think he averaged something like 45 batting in New Zealand. We know that Jeremy Coney batting, you know, between 2005 and 2015 certainly would have been, had a higher average than 37, right? This is what happens. I think Darren Sammy's case, um, you know, very skillful bowler. The wobble ball would have been a big part of what he did. Not sure. I, did I say Doug Bollinger before or Doug Bracewell? I can't remember. I'm a, so it was Doug Bracewell that you mentioned in question. Sorry. Um, yeah. And I, I, Dominique Passard and Doug Bracewell, I know them, but I don't know them as quite as well as I know Darren Sammy's bowling. But my, my thoughts are that all of them were pretty good. And maybe when it became a more skill dependent wobble ball era, they're, um, their skills would have shown. I just look for, if you just look at Darren Sammy alone, if he played in this area, he would have played with the Dukes, right? Um, kind of ideal for him. Uh, but yes, there are many players who play out of time at the wrong time uh, in their career. You know, Abdul Qadir, we know that he was an absolutely fantastic bowler uh, for Pakistan. If he plays in the generation after when there's so much talk about me really, and there's so much talk about Anil Kumble and obviously Shane Warne, then things are going to be very, very different from that perspective. So I do think, uh, I do think from that perspective, everyone sort of gets, you end up in the era that you're in, right? And there's not much you can do about that. Um, but that's, that's what cricket is. And it's also, a lot of it is about changing your game to the era that you're playing in, right? So, if you were a finger spinner in 2000 and you're lucky enough to play for 15 years, you're probably going to be bowling differently in 2015 than you are in 2000. And the better players generally, not always, but generally find a way to be able to work out what they need to do to stick around or to be successful, right? And so maybe we're thinking about this the wrong way, which is that it's remarkable that Darren Sammy, Dimitri Passard, and Bracewell, you know, actually managed to um, stick around, which shows you how talented they were, but their numbers are never going to do that. But there are thousands and thousands of players from other eras that, you know, don't get the respect that they deserve. Uh, Neuron says, how many English pacers have promised to start to their career and disappear after a few? Uh, Tremlett, Onions, Sidebottom, Roland Jones, and Bresden had their 15 minutes of fame and vanished. I haven't given up on, on Archie yet. Is Robertson, Stone, Overton, and Potts any different? Um... I think this is the thing with seam bowling altogether. I don't think this is specifically a um, English centric thing. It's a hard sport. It does a lot. I think the county system makes you bowl a lot. So I do think there is a part of that. Um, Tremlett is an interesting one because he was good at a younger age, but never really, he didn't quite develop the way that everyone probably thought he should have. And there were periods in his game where he was unplayable, but there are plenty of periods of a game where he wasn't a particularly good bowler as well onions and side bottom i think the same thing probably happens to both of these players which is that they were asked to bowl a little bit faster than they should have been bowled um that was more to probably to do with the era that they played in and the thinking of the the team around that time that probably slowed them down uh, a little bit 
Uh, Roland Jones, Roland Jones, if you haven't seen my video on Ken Higgs, it's worth going back. I think Roland Jones is more of a Ken Higgs type of player uh, in that, you know, very skillful, very England dependent, but England can always find someone like that, you know, and uh, maybe obviously not quite on Ken Higgs's level, but there's always a player out there like that. Uh, Bresden was injured, wasn't he? Bresden's thing is the elbow, in, I think it's an elbow, um, and he just slowed down a lot, and you know that can happen to absolutely anyone. So the the point is that these things happen quite a bit. And look, if you go back to if you go back to Australia of I don't know, let's say two thousand and five to two thousand and what fourteen, there you know Mitchell Johnson came and went from that team. Ben Hilfenhaus was picked, and probably when he was bowling 90 mile an hour um, uh, outswingers by the end of his career, he's probably bowling 80 mile an hour um, once Peter Siddle hit Gautam Gambia first ball in the head, I think in test cricket bowling in India, he's an out and out fast bowler. And by the end, you know, military medium, Sean Tate, you know, one of the fastest, most exciting bowlers you will ever see. Um, by the time he got to test level and international level consistently, maybe not quite as fast as he was when, when we first saw him come through it. Um, Ryan Harris couldn't even get picked in the side. Uh, you know, then when he did, he got injured a lot and disappeared. That's just like the main bowlers. I could go through, I don't know, Ashley Nofke. Stuart Clark came in for a little while and he disappeared quite early. Um, there's probably tons of other bowlers. I'm trying to think of, of, of some others that came through at that time. The point is that that is what fast bowling is. It, you know, the, the Courtney Walsh, Glenn McGrath, um, Jimmy Anderson, Richard Hadley, type careers are the rarer careers more likely what happens is you come into the game you bowl really good for a little while then you work out how to bowl with whatever your body is now crocked with um <laughs> if you're lucky and that allows you to stick around but not everyone does right and uh sean pollock is someone who slowed down dramatically um and then had to rebuild his bowling not everyone can tim Bresden clearly didn't have the same talent as, as someone like sean pollock so you know, they, these things affect, affect everyone. I don't think it's specifically an English thing. All right, let's have a short break. And then after the break, uh, we will, um, uh, what we do after the break, uh, we'll come back, we'll do some more Patreon questions, and then I'll get to anything that's in the room. You're watching The Wagon Wheel. And I am Jared Kimball. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that you can stay close to your team, even if you don't live in their town. Like, maybe you're a Raven who married a Seahawk who got a job in the land of the Falcons. With NFL Sunday Ticket, you can watch your team's out-of-market Sunday afternoon games no matter where you live because you shouldn't have to change teams even if you change towns. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. Welcome back, Wagon Wheel. Jared Kimber here. Uh, big thanks to everyone. There's plenty of people in the comments today. We've got uh, Anne Wesh and who else? We've got Oren. Um, Chris Deebs, our senior. EKG is back as well. So please, uh, it always helps us if you can put a comment in. Uh, but if you have a desperate, if you're watching on YouTube now and you're desperate to uh, ask me a question, remember the best thing there is the Super Chats. Cam says, was Cricket Status Hour the greatest podcast in the history of time? After the Wagon Wheel, obviously. I'm glad he's asked that on the Wagon Wheel. Uh, look, I loved doing Cricket Status Hour. Um, uh, that was my podcast with Andy Zaltzman. I know we will bring it back, and we've certainly had multiple conversations about bringing it back. Uh, it's just, uh, you know, 
Andy's career is a little bit different than it used to be. I think he hosts a, a show on um, Radio 4 now as well. Obviously, my career has gone a little bit differently. We will bring back Cricket Saber Sour when... I, I can't really tell you, but I think my career is certainly going to more towards podcasts more than anything else at the moment. And so it would be silly to not bring Andy back. It may take a sponsor getting on board. Uh, it may take, you know, just us changing the way that we do things a little bit. I, I'm not sure, but I do think in the, you know, short to long term will be, you know, we, we have, ha- we had a discussion. I'm sure we'll have another one in the next couple of weeks as well. And, we will work out how to bring it back. But it might just be that at least in the short term, he comes back for some special projects rather than committing to one thing a week. But there's a there's a, a particular thing I've talked to him about that I think he really, really wants to do. Um, and so we'll get him back on for that. We'll slap him back up here. So if you're not following the Jared Kimber Podcast Network, you might miss Andy Zaltzman's return. Uh, but without without doubt, we will, you know, me and Andy are still uh, friends. We still love talking uh, cricket with each other. I'm sure that will come back. I'm not sure it's the best podcast of all time. I'm a big fan of Monster Talk um, and the Thinking Basketball podcast. <laughs> uh, Nadika says, will things get easier for left-handed batters eventually, or do you think they'll ever return to having an advantage over righties? Or will they average the same as right-handers? Um, I think there's always going to be a natural advantage there because you can't... Uh, the, the only way there wouldn't be a natural advantage is if there are lots of dads out there like me and mums out there or coaches out there like me who train their children about left-handed even though they're not natural left-handers that would be the only way that people will get used to bowling to them but until there's a point at which when you play club cricket or junior cricket or street cricket and 50 percent are left-handers and 50 percent are right-handers i can't see how left-handers won't have an advantage usually though it evens out a little bit at the top level because teams generally over teams generally pick left-handers who are slightly less skilled than right-handers because of that advantage and so the overall thing it does wash out a little bit it's not like Openers, um, openers, what are we talking about? It's not like Southpaws are averaging 50 and, you know, right-handers are averaging 35, right? Like, there should be a small advantage there because it, it, there, is an, uh, there is that. But also the fact that that is negated by the fact that there aren't as many left-handers out there to choose from in the first place. Uh, Manon says, has Pat overtaken Jadeja as the number one pick in the imaginary Test Cricket Fantasy draft? You know, there, <laughs> there are times even in this test where and in the last test, where I just don't think he's as ruthless as he used to be with the ball. And I don't know if that's the captaincy or, you know, the ball's not coming out of his hand as well. But then, the, you know, in this last test, he, you know, he was struggling with the wobble ball. And so he went to swing bowling and was fantastic with it, right? And you forget that he can do that. I mean, you're talking about someone who can bowl 90 miles an hour and used to be able to bowl 95 and probably could still get up there if he had to, but can bowl outswing and in swing plus a perfect wobble ball. We've never had anything like this before. It's so next level as far as, you know, a combination of all the different skills in one bowler that we've ever had. But if you look at his record compared to some other seamers of his era, he is, you know, the second best seamer or the the third best seamer. Again, to go back to the whole conversation we're having before, it's probably not that much worse than Pat Cummins. You know, when you look at record and everything else. I'm not sure the second best all-rounder, which I suppose is Stokes, or Holder, whatever's left of Shakib, uh, you know, in, in Test Match Cricket, maybe Cameron Green as he comes up. I don't think any of those guys are anywhere near Jadeja's level. And I think all-rounders have such a bigger impact because of what they can do uh, on both sides of the ball. I find it hard to think that you would take Cummins. But 
you know, I'm sure if we did this fantasy draft and one day, you know, we, we will we'll get the guys on and we'll all do one together. I would think at that stage that um, that there is a very big chance that you would take um, you that someone might want to take Jadeja. Uh, sorry, Cummins over Jadeja. I, th I think it's a, a fair conversation, as is the Steve Smith argument. I think they're all fair com conversations, but I think I'd still take Jadeja if it was me. Well, I, I don't think I would take Jadeja. Christopher says, would four-day tests suit uh, this England side even more, or do you think part of their game is the time to take 20 wickets, and four-day tests would mean the opposition just goes even more negative? I, I've said this a lot. If you watch first-class cricket, I'm not saying the teams play more like a baseball style but the early declarations and you know the the riskier moves and the the strat the weird strategies and all this sort of stuff is what happens in first class cricket four day cricket you know uh is what most most first class cricket is so from that perspective i think england are kind of already there i don't know whether it would help them massively but if we do play four day tests remember that we're only the idea is to only lose what 45 or 50 overs I know that wasn't the case with the island test, but you know to play more overs in a in a day, uh, and so overall you're not losing as many um, overs by missing out on that final day. You're basically playing four and a half day tests. So I'm not sure if that if that's how they do four day tests. I'm not sure it matters as much. But yeah, I do think there will be. It is probably easier. To, the, the one thing about four day games is blocking out a draw on a fourth day is easier because there's less time in the game, but also the pitch hasn't degraded as much. So there are going to be times when that would affect England. Might make, mean that England play even more aggressive, though. Jake says, given the performance of Root, Labashane, and Smith in this test match, should the last two have taken their preparation more seriously uh, with a stint in a high-quality competition like the IPL as opposed to County Championship Division 2? Um, yeah, I mean, quite clearly, yeah, Labashane was wasting his time uh, playing all that county cricket. I, I think the Labashane thing is really interesting of... Uh, but funny question. But I'll, I'll just one thing I want to say on Lavishan. I think it's really interesting that England have found a method, and it's only worked twice. And Lavishan will have a counter to this method. But England have found a method that I haven't seen another team try, which is the sort of over pitching to him, knowing that it's going to be wide and that he wants to hit the ball, and that when it's fuller, he will sort of push at the ball. It's really interesting of how he reacts to that. Um, from from that perspective, um, but yeah, I think I still expect Labuschagne and and Smith to make you know a few runs, even with their Division Two county experience uh, holding them back. Aditya says, "Can Joe Root play as a frontline spinner in England? He can't play as a frontline spinner anywhere. What? <laughs> why does that? Why do people keep asking this? Have you seen him bowl in the first innings? He's basically useless. Like he he can't. He needs the pitch to be ragging, and generally he needs left-handers." to be able to be of any use as a bowler. Um, I, I haven't looked it up for ages, but I think the first two innings of test matches, the average is over 60 against right-handers in, the, in them. <laughs> He's, <laughs> the overrating, it's fun times I'll see someone go, is Joe Root's bowling underrated? No, Joe Root's bowling is accurately rated. He is handy in certain situations. That is it. Um, if so, can he move to eight in place of Moeen, Brook at four, best at five, and folks at seven with gloves? Yeah, I mean, even if even if he was a frontline spinner, which he is not, he's never gonna he's never gonna bat at eight. Um, uh, they'll keep him up the order. It, you know, it, he could bat at number four and still bowl quite a few overs. I don't think I think he's fit enough to be able to do that. 
I, I don't see an issue there. But he's not a frontline spinner. He will never be a frontline spinner. Certainly not in England. Uh, Ian says, everyone loves the passion of the Ashes, but do you make yourself look an idiot if you try and give a send-off to a bloke who's just scored 141 against you? More generally, do you think it has a positive effect for the bowling team in future or just makes the batter even more motivated not to get out to them? I, I wouldn't be too worried about that. Although, you know, we do know that comments can focus players and all that sort of stuff, but they can also go the other way. I think if I was Ollie Robertson and I had a history, a questionable history when it comes to race, that's maybe not the player I would talk to. Also, the Usman Khawaja is not a shit stirrer. I'm, I'm not saying he doesn't have words for people and he's not involved, but it, on an Australian level, it seems like a weird player to target on top of the fact that he has made uh, 140. I just, I don't think in general you should be sending off somebody who's made 140. I don't think it's a good look for you. I don't think it's a good look to make it personal. Uh, I don't think it's, if, if the only way to get them out is with like six guys in the Yorkshire wall um, around the bat um, and you've happened, to, you've happened to slip a Yorker through him while he, he's run down the wicket and tried to squeeze you through point for four. Um, I, I just, you know, I think it tells you a lot about Ollie Robinson. I, I remember we're having this conversation uh, with someone about, you know, the fact that he has been in trouble for, you know, racial comments before, racist comments before, sorry. And uh, the fact that Usman Khawaja has made 141. Surely you just wouldn't do this. And the other person said, yeah, but Ollie Robinson's not very smart. And some people are just not very smart, right? And athletes do get caught up in the emotion. In, in the emotion. I, I found the other side of it is really interesting as well, that Australians, you know, suddenly clutching their pearls. Look, this Australian team's been behaving much better of recent times. There's no doubt about that. But Mitchell Stark's out there. I remember Mitchell Stark screaming in the face of, I want to say Karen Nair, right? Told him to F off, if I remember the words correctly, right in his face in, in I want to say Bangalore, but I, where was it Bangalore? Wherever that test match was. Um, what, what else? You've got David Warner, who held like a dog for hours at Faf Plessy. <laughs> I mean, are we really saying that the as Australians, our team has behaved well for two years, so you can no longer be dicks to us? I think people are going to be dicks, and people are dicks. And the Australian players might be dicks at times in this tour, even if they are, you know, better behaved now than at any stage ever. I, I thought it was a really weird thing on all sides. But anyway, that's what happens in, in the Ashes or, you know, India, Australia and India, England. All these things get blown out of before, uh, you know. Uh, th things that happen regularly in cricket games become a bigger deal in, in these sorts of situations. GD says, after the World Test Championship final, I was listening to Sid Monger say that while India has serious injury concerns, some of the issues with the Indian squad can be attributed to the lack of aid tours since the start of COVID. The return of political employees after the coin appointed um, committees left, uh, uh, the blaming and firing of the chairman of selectors to appease the fans and drive its tenure as the uh, senior team head coach. Oh, it looks like we missed the end of that question. Sorry, GD. Yeah, I didn't hear Monga say all that. I would certainly, let. what would I agree with there? Um, the A2 is one massively would agree with. I think that Raul Dravid was doing a great job with that. I almost think that, I don't know if he'd want to do it, but like Anil Kumble coming back and almost role switching with Raul Dravid and doing that or someone else, you know, um, some other young uh coach who can help the A players. I know, having talked to the A players at times, they just absolutely loved that situation, the amount of cricket that they got to play. I've talked about the Shreya Sai situation before. I think his development was held back because there weren't as many A tours at a time when he was probably on the verge of playing for India. 
Uh, what else do we have in here? Political appointees. Yep. I mean, in any cricket board in the world, if you're going away from smart, independent people who want the team to be best and you start appointing people for political reasons, there should be, not always, not consistently, but over a long period of time, there should be issues with that. Uh, mistakes are made. The firing of the chairman of selectors to appease the fans. If, if you're firing a, a chairman or a coach or a captain to appease the fans, you're already making a mistake. I'm not saying that is 100% what happened. But if that is what you were doing, then that is a horrible way of, of doing things. So, yeah, I do think that I, I do think there are several issues with Indian cricket. But having said that, I don't think they were particularly bad in this World Test Championship cycle. Uh, I just don't think they're as good as Australia. And even a full-strength team against Australia, I still think Australia might be slightly... would have been, Well, the pitch favoured Australia as well. And so I, I still I thought that all things considered, they were just the better team in that. But you can, maybe all these things are playing a part. I, I don't I don't think that's an unfair way of looking at things. Uh, and GG G- G- says, got another one. Please rank these from the least likely to cause England's defeat. Uh, premature declaration, Kawaja's determination, Moeen Ali's disintegrating finger, Stokes' dodgy knees, uh, England's dearth of a short ball enforcer, or add your own, who is Mark Wood replacing the pot, to pots and tongue come into? Um, so the least likely, so the declaration probably is the least likely thing to cause England's defeat. And I know that's going to sound weird because it's probably going to get blamed the most. The reason I'd say it's the least likely is because I think if they bat it on, it's more likely that a draw happens than anything else in that particular game. And also if they did bat on, you know, the the shape shape of the game might've changed. What if they put on 50 or 60 more runs, right? Um, what if they went out next ball anyway? We, we don't really know. So I'm not too worried about that. Kawaja's determination. I think that was, I think we have to say as fantastically as batted, that was a pitch that was really well suited to Usman Kawaja. Would England have thought when they were making a pitch like that, that they were playing into the hands of Kawaja? Did they plan as well to Kawaja? So the determination is really interesting. During the game, they made a, I'll probably make a whole video on this, but they made a fielding move against the spinners where they put someone straight back, which really changed the way that Kawaja batted. I felt like, and they then also started bowling over the wicket to him when they'd been bowling around the wicket to him. I just found that they made a lot of errors where they just hadn't thought of him that much. Maybe they watched him bat at the Oval, uh, you know, the week before where he didn't look particularly special. Um, I don't know. But my point would be that I think that that was, um, I think the determination was great. And obviously you need that in order to make runs at any time. But there was other things there. Moinelli's disintegrating finger. I just think that could have been worked better. He bowled an incredibly long spell to start with. And I, I don't think he necessarily needed to bowl that long spell. But this is part of the problem. And this goes into Stokes' dodgy knees, right? I, I, I think me and Bayram did a podcast where like, are they, if Stokes is not an all-rounder, or certainly can't bowl as much anymore, or can't bowl the way that he used to, that really changes England's team. And so you go into the fact that they didn't have a short ball enforcer. Well, who would that have been in this kind of team? Usually it would have been Stokes. So can they go in with the three medium fast bowlers anymore? So Stokes' injuries or, you know, the, the lack of bowling that he can do really makes a big thing. Um, uh, what else did you have here? Uh, so uh, I, won't, I won't go into the Mark Wood uh, pot's tongue thing because we don't know what the next pitch is going to be like yet. But um, 
so what is the least likely to have caused England's defeat? I think that is probably the declaration. I think Kawaja, the lack of good plans to Kawaja is much more important than his determination. I think Moanelli's disintegrating finger played a part. But having said that, I, I thought he might take a lot of wickets in this test match because Australia would attack him more. If he was fit, I suppose that happens, so that changes. Stokes' dodgy knees certainly plays a big part. Yeah, but that is linked to the short ball enforcer. So I think I'm least worried about the declaration. I'm almost most worried about the Kawaja um, lack of plans, which they will fix going forward. And then the other thing is that because of Stokes' dodgy knees, England's didn't have a short ball enforcer. I think we saw that that was something that they definitely needed. They got away with it in the first innings. I wrote an article about that and made a video about that. They didn't get away with it in the second innings. All right, that's the end of Patreon. Uh, I will uh, take a quick break here. And then after the break, uh, we will get to... um, After break, we will get to uh, uh, anything that's in the chat. So if you have a super chat, this is the time to do it. You're listening to Wagon Wheel. I am Jared Kimball. All right, welcome back, Wagon Wheel. I'm Jared Kimber, and I'll just go. I'll just finish off with some um, questions from the room. Uh, oh, I have to click on them, don't I? Especially just to make them easier to read. Um, Sarosh says uh, the consensus seems to be that the first test pitch was not the was not the best. Pack 2.0, but I can't shake the feeling that the reaction in this pitch hasn't nearly been the same as the Pakistan pitch. Thoughts? <laughs> this was nowhere near as bad as any of the Pakistan pitches. What are we talking about here, Sarosh? Did you watch it? Like, A, wickets fell regularly, right? I would say that, weirdly enough, I mean, it was a flat batting pitch where the bowlers had a chance of getting wickets. They didn't have a chance of getting wickets conventionally uh, through, from an England point of view, conventionally, you know, slips and um, those sorts of things. They probably, it probably lacked pace, uh, especially, you know, I'm not saying Edge Bassett's a particularly fast pitch, but... It certainly lacked pace. I, I, I have no problem with this getting like you know, a one-off demerit point. I don't think it's quite that bad to get it, but I would have no problem with this getting a demerit point. But I've watched a lot of cricket in Pakistan. This is nothing like. There were no times when you thought, oh, these guys could bat forever and not lose any wickets. Even when, I don't know what were the best partnerships. Kwaja Carey, Kwaja Head. Thought you know, uh, not Kwaja as much, but I thought Carey and Head looked like going out. Root and Kwaja. Uh, oh, actually, that maybe the root Bearstow partnership would be the other one. Um, although even my memory of that is that there were, you know, chances there. I thought Root and Kawaja just batted perfectly, and both teams bowled badly to them. Didn't come up with good plans. Didn't put fielders in the right positions. All those sorts of things. Um, but no, I didn't think this was anywhere near as bad as, as some of the Pakistan pitches. The Pakistan pitches were unfit for Test cricket. There was no stage where I thought this was unfit for Test cricket. I thought the England asked for a batting pitch. The groundsman tried to give them a batting pitch and it went wrong and it wasn't a good pitch. And they probably will get a, they might get a warning. Um, the ICC might say it wasn't great, but you could still get wickets on this. I think from a cricket perspective, you'd say was, you know, was it always a good spectacle? Maybe not. Um, but I don't think it was so heavily weighted in, in you know, we, we lost what I want to say the best part of it. I don't know how many overs we lost altogether, but maybe, you know, 60, 70 overs in this game. Um, and there were still 36 wickets taken. Uh, it's not like they come came all at the end or came all at the start. You know, it was pretty regular all the way through. So bowlers were genuinely uh, interested on that surface. They had to bowl differently. They had to bowl with different fields. I think if you're an England 
cricket person, you might think to yourself, do, you know, is that the kind of wicket that we want to watch or, you know, encourage? Probably not. But no, it, nothing like the Pakistani pitches. <laughs> Come on. Some of these Pakistani pitches, Suresh, you and I wouldn't have gone out on. Uh, Kyle says, who looks like uh, the bigger loss for England, Archer or Leach? Uh, Archer by a considerable distance, Kyle, because Leach is a left-arm finger spinner who would be bowling against a bunch of left-handers, and we already see he's had problems with that. I think he's a much better bowler now than the last time he went up against Australia. Plus, you know, he, probably, he would have got some purchase at least on that on that wicket. But you know, Archer is uh, Archer is the perfect bowler for English conditions in Test matches because he allows them to. Uh, it allows them to have a very, very fast bowler who can also, when the ball's moving around, be very, very skillful. And it would be fair to Mark Wood. Mark Wood can only do one of those things. Um, and that's the problem. It, it, to be fair, to, Mark Wood and Ollie Robinson can each be very, very, uh, can each be very good at very different ends of the spectrums. Whereas Joff Archer at his very best, and we may never see that. And, you know, it, it, it hasn't happened consistently in Test cricket. But if you look at what he did at Lords, followed by what he did at Headingley, Wood and um, uh, Robinson don't have that ability. So for England, he's like two bowlers in one. Max says, if Boland or Hazelwood are going to leak runs anyway with these fields, why not pick Sark uh, as his strike rate is amazing? I think they were backing what they thought was their three best bowlers. I think if they'd known the pitch was going to be that... I think if both teams knew that the pitch was going to be like this, that slow, I think Wood probably plays. Although I talked to a lot of people in English cricket who they think he wouldn't have anyway. I think if Australia knew that the pitch was going to be like that, Stark definitely would have played. The other thing with Stark is, and I'll probably do a, a, a video on this, Max, so I think it's really, really interesting, is that specifically for Stark, um, England are playing like it's one-day cricket and T20 cricket. And Stark is still, uh, not, not Hazelwood's not become a very good version of that, but Stark is a fantastic you know, T20 and, and one-day bowler. And I, so I do wonder from that perspective if, Later on in the series, they'll think about it more from that perspective, which is, I think you, are, you and I are coming at this from a slightly different perspective, Max, but I think the, the basic principle there is that um, they would have done that. I, I think the real thing with Stark was that he went in over five runs and over against India, and that really spooked Australia. Uh, Shramana says, teams do gestures like black armbands frequently. Australia do native rituals, and England men and women mourn the Queen. Uh, who plans and proves these? And uh, what if the opposition refused to take part? Uh, the opposition would almost never refuse to take part because then you would refuse to take part in their in in their ones. So I think even I don't know who would be the country, you know, maybe Ireland or Scotland, uh, you know, with the Queen uh, might have been an awkward situation. Um, but there would be a way of doing it that would placate both teams. You know, the the black uh, the black um, uh, the the kneeling salutes that the West Indians did. There was always conversations there. Um, I think teams understand that uh, countries are very different in the way they go about things. Uh, who plans and approves these things? And generally, these are team-led, right? It's not always the case. Sometimes a board will say, we have to do this because of this. But very, very generally, it is team-led um, that it comes from, from that, especially when it comes to black armbands. You're talking about bigger things like uh, the, the murders uh, that happened in, I want to say Manchester. Uh, I think I've got that right. Was it no Nottingham? Sorry, the murders that happened in Nottingham. Uh, that may not have been team specific, but the players talk about all this sort of stuff um, all the time, and, and you know. So from that perspective, uh, they could do that. But I don't think 
I think it would, you know, it's a bit like going to someone's house and complaining they've got, you know, religious stuff on the walls if you're an opposition team to do that. That's not to say that you can't do it. And if you were asked about it, you wouldn't have a very valid point. But I do think in general, that's why we see those things. Uh, Max says, when did captains ask if a pitch condition such as baseball and flat decks come into vogue? Or has it always been happening? I think one way or another, captains have talked to uh, you know, curators for a very, very long time uh, when, when it comes to those sorts of things. I think that, you know, I mean, Rohit Sharma and India have c- clearly been talking to their uh, uh, curators. It doesn't, it's, it's always been there. It's certainly a big thing in first class cricket. But I think now it, it happens a lot in T20 franchise leagues. And I think because of that, I think teams are like, why would we not use this natural advantage? Um, the, the question is, is, when does it go too far? And is it good for the overall spectacle? I think those are fair questions going ahead. Korshik says, can England replace Melanie's bowling with Joe Root for the next test? If, I mean, no. I've, I mean, I've already answered that one, so I shouldn't have put it up again, Korshik. But he's not, he's not a frontline spinner. The one advantage he has when bowling to the Australians is that Joe Root will get to bowl to a lot of left-handers, right? And I think because of that, um, you know, his, his overall... Uh, ability just because australia has so many left-handers at any one time you know i think because of that he has slightly more use against australia he goes at 3.5 runs and over uh while averaging 42 right in england he go his average is 45 while averaging uh 34 with 20 wickets what are we talking about here he's not a frontline bowler he's not gonna bowl well he will bowl but he's not gonna be a frontline bowler um what they might do is just go all seam, which I think is possible, and then he will be the spinner, and we will see, you know, 10 to 15 overs of him. And then maybe if he gets another pitch like he did at the end. I thought, so that 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 second innings when he's bowling to Australia, that's the kind of conditions you want Joe Root to bowl. Bunches of left-handers, a little bit of rough on the wicket. It's not particularly easy to hit spin. High-pressure situation. He can bowl really, really fast because he will get movement off the pitch. That's what he wants. He wants to be able to bowl. He doesn't. He's not a spinner in a traditional sense. He's more like a roller. And what he really wants to be able to do is bowl really, really fast so that you can't use your feet and that you can't change his length. And then he can skid the ball through occasionally and the odd one will, will straighten and will give you problems if you're a left-hander. Um, that's what he wants to do. That's when he's at his absolute best. Those conditions don't actually happen that often um, in, in test cricket. And uh, against top-order batters, more often than not, they will just milk him or, or just knock him around and he won't look that good. I think every time he looks good, people think he looks better. And they forget all the times when he bowls and he looks completely innocuous. He's not averaging... What's his current average? He's not averaging 46.29 by accident. I just want to look at that. 46.29. And in Asia, he averages 31.8, right? In Africa, he averages 66. In the West Indies, he averages 54. In England, he averages 45. And in Australia and New Zealand, he averages 59. He needs the ball to be doing something for him. That generally is only going to happen later in the game. And he needs it to do a lot because he can't naturally get the variation because he is more of a roller. He probably doesn't even have a callus, jocks or otherwise. Uh, Atharva says, why Duke's ball is not moving as much? In 2019, it was moving corners. Okay, so... In 2018-19, the vast majority of bowlers in the world were still trying to get the ball to swing a lot. What they're trying to do now specifically is get the ball to wobble ball. Wobble balls don't move as much as swing, right? Or even traditional seam at times. Uh, A lot of wobble balls go absolutely dead straight. 
the the idea there is that when they do move, it's more drastic and it's harder to deal with, and you don't know when it's going to happen, and blah 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 blah, all these different things. So from that perspective, I think the uh, Duke's ball is, you know, uh, going like that. Uh, it's not as noticeable what the movement is. But if you had a look when Pat Cummins wanted to swing it, I'm trying to remember. I think there was a period when England started trying to swing it as well because they weren't getting anything off the surface. It did start to move around a little bit. The other thing you need to know about Duke's balls is 2018, 2019 could have been a batch that swung more, right? 2015 might have been a batch that didn't swing more. 2022 was a batch that went soft. Cricket balls don't always act the same, right? They do react very, very differently. And then you've got, whether we, we talked about it early in the podcast, do overhead conditions, are they involved? And all those sorts of things. And we got some super chats. Shashank. Ah, thank you, Shashank. Just subscribe to your Patreon. Uh, when you have a topic to discuss, how do you plan your research and how do you make those great graphs? So, A, thank you for joining on Patreon. I feel like now you've, you've paid me twice here, Shashank. Um, so I want to say thank you twice. Um, when you have a topic to discuss, how do you plan your research? So it really depends on the article and what I'm looking for. I Actually, I got my iPad here. I would try and explain this for the people listening on uh, podcasts at home, but I can actually probably just show people on uh, on the YouTube what I do. Apparently, my thumb is no longer my thumb. Uh, this is a terrible one to show you. <laughs> uh, let me find one that's a little bit better here. Uh, so I do a lot of um, spider uh, maps, uh, and but but just a lot of uh, what's the best way of putting it? Um, I I do a lot of. Um, uh, brainstorming and uh, coming up with with patterns and everything. So, have a look here. This is one. Oh, sorry, for Mitchell Stark that I have coming up. You probably won't be able to read any of it. But you can see, you know, very very basic. I put Stark's name there, and then I'm just putting down as long, as many different ideas as I have for that particular article uh, that I want to come up with. And then, but generally, I go a little bit more. Um, so, oh, this is the Warner around the wicket one. You can see that kind of know roughly where I want to put stif- stuff, why I want to put stuff there. There's some notes also on that page. Um, of, of So what I'm trying to do there is come up with, put the, the idea in the center of the screen and then let my brain sort of go, okay, so what should I start with? Where should I go next? What are all the beats that I want uh, I want to do? Uh, once I've come up with those sorts of things, I've also got a whiteboard behind where I'm filming here is a big whiteboard the size of my wall. I put up a bunch of stuff there and do exactly the same thing. Sometimes I use my iPad, sometimes I do it there. Uh, and I just want to get the ideas out. So, okay, so I'm running about Warner. Okay, so I want to do other left-handed openers. There's the whole Ben Duckett thing. Uh, you know, who's been good, who's been bad? When did it change for him? Has it changed for everyone as much as it's changed for him? All these sorts of things. Then I go about and go, okay, well, these are my points and my interests. And now I'm going to go research each one. So I'm going to find as much information as I can on each one until I'm pretty solid that I can understand it myself, explain it to someone else, and make it interesting. Those are the three things that I want to be able to do. It might be succinct. It might take five paragraphs. That doesn't matter. That's how I do the research from, from that point of view. Um, and then you have had the piece like the Pat Cummins chest piece. That was completely just open. Uh, what, what's the best way of putting it? What's the phrase I'm looking for? Just stream of consciousness. I just had a bunch of notes and I literally just put my notes down and wrote from note to note to note to note. And I just wanted to capture the mood of, of what was going on in that particular session. I felt like I'd done that and then I would go away. So that, you know, 
depending on what kind of article you're doing, you plan them all and research them. Uh, my graphs, um, I make those on Flourish, Canva. We used to use Data Wrapper as well, as well, but I don't think we use Data Wrapper anymore. But Flourish and Canva are probably the two major places that we use, that we do. Uh, that you know, Canva, we we do so much of our work now is done via Canva. Uh, a lot of our animations we do in house on Canva. Um, you know, myself and Moku and AJ occasionally. You know, we all love that. Um, Cheyenne's over there. Even when we did the mood board, Charlie Reynolds would be over at Canva. We're all becoming experts in Canva at the moment. Uh, but thank you for subscribing to my Patreon and for that super chat, sir. And then we've got San, who says, I find it interesting to watch cricket. Uh, I find it more interesting to watch cricket when I, when I know the field placements. I think having field placements, like the uh, in, in, uh, um, uh, like in cricket games, should be the next step in cricket broadcasting. Yeah, we, we see it a little bit, don't we? Um, why it's not on the screen at the moment, I think they think it's for cricket nerds, San, I think is the major reason. Uh, I'm with you. I get frustrated not knowing where the fielders are. In fact, we, we were commentating this week from a particularly small commentary box for SCN, and I was quite often up against the wall, and I found it so frustrating to not be able to always see the leg side field or even the long on and long off if, if they were out there, like how wide they were and everything else. I'm 100% with you. I think um, I'd love to see more and more uh, field placements there. I, I, as I said, the Usman Khawaja field change in this test match was an incredibly important moment didn't end up changing the result, but certainly made it much harder for Australia to get there in that chase because of the way that they were bowling to him and that, and that fielding placement. And you see that a lot. And the, the commentators are seeing it and reacting to it. But the cameras aren't always showing us exactly what we need to know. So 100% couldn't agree more. Thank you very much for your super chat, as well. But yes, we all want to see more fielding stuff. Anyway, thank you to everyone, especially to Shashank and San there, and everyone on Patreon, of course, as well, earlier um, for, for getting all those questions in. Uh, huge, huge couple of weeks we've had on the, on the site. If you can uh, help us out by um, also subscribing to the Jared Kimber podcast um, on YouTube, that is a huge one for us. Eventually, we'll move everything over there, as I said at the start. But plenty of videos and articles and everything else. If you haven't seen the Pat Cummins video, I think I had a bit of fun with that. Uh, there's a ridiculous line about Stuart Broad, which made me giggle writing. Um, so hopefully you, you enjoyed that as well. Um, but, you know, plenty of stuff coming. We've try and get some World, World Cup qualifier stuff. I'd love to go through Sekandar Raza's innings. Um, I thought they, Zimbabwe looked uh, impressive there, but it's just a matter of time as well. And, you know, it's, uh, I basically haven't slept since the test match last night. So doing everything we can, but thank you as always for everyone's support. Remember, you can follow us uh, right across all the social medias. I'm kind of everywhere at all times, but thank you very much. And we will see you again uh, very soon. I'm trying to remember, we've got a bunch of other podcasts coming up in the next couple of days. And I've got one more video on the, the main part of the ashes test i i, I should you know I, that's something i want to talk about uh, overall but there's also i've half done a video on stark we've got another video probably on usman Khadra and england's new fielding positions uh we've got a steve smith one um, that's really cool um and i've got a bunch of big uh, uh features that we've been doing for the ashes which a couple of which are not that far away as well so huge thanks to everyone and we will see you again next time Thanks for listening to Wagon Wheel. This show has an ad-free version via Patreon. 
which also allows you to ask questions before anyone else and many other extras as well. There is a link in the show notes. And if you want more content, well, I have good news for you because we have a lot of things. You can follow us on YouTube where we make all kind of crazy stuff like the complete history of New Zealand opening batters and how Kagisa Rabada was dismissed from a zombie ball. We do a similar thing on TikTok. I also have an emailer that sends out a couple of columns a week and we run another podcast called Double Century on the History of Cricket. This podcast is hosted by me, Jared Kimber. It is produced by Nick McCorriston. We also have a great support team from 42 with Rati Joshi on socials, Orijoti Senapia producing podcasts, Meda Akam producing some of the shows, and Makanda Banredi as the head of YouTube content. Sports Social Podcast Network.